Yeah, Anthony mentioned I'm an NBA fan. What he didn't mention is he's a fan of the Suns, who are the number one team in the NBA right now. Yeah. Oh, you can cheer for the Suns. Yeah, if you like the Suns, go for it. Um, and I'm a, I'm a fan of the Sacramento Kings. I grew up in Sacramento. And you're like, there's a team in Sacramento? I didn't even know that. Um, we are, we're going to go for the record this year, the most consecutive years missing the playoffs. So um, I know misery as an NBA fan. Yeah, woo! Um, like Anthony mentioned... My name is Keith. I am um, the executive pastor at Redemption Church Tucson. Uh, I, I love being up here with you guys. Uh, thanks for inviting us, Anthony. It's an honor to be here, a privilege to be here with you at Redemption Flagstaff. Um, I think we have a number of things in common, our congregations. He mentioned we meet in a school as well, although I will say your guys' seats are very nice compared to our seats. We meet in a, a middle school that was built in 1900, um, and pretty sure they haven't updated the seats since then, so uh, it's very uncomfortable, but we have that in common. I love, I'm sure that the school has been a blessing to you guys, just as you've been a blessing to the school, and that's how it's been for us as well, uh, and we also share this in common. Our, our kids, our high school kids, went to camp together this past summer. Yeah, and I guess they made the, like, uh, their own, they formed a group between Flagstaff and Tucson and called it Flagson. Is that... Flag sin. But we're Tucson, we're not Tucson. <laughs> I think it should have been two staff. We should have been first. Um, but yes, honestly, it is, it's a privilege, it's an honor to be here with you. Let me introduce you to my family. Um, we have the picture of my family. We came up here on Friday and we figured we'd go to the Grand Canyon. Um, can you see that? So they were having fun. You see that? Um, my wife, Desiree, and I have been married for almost 12 years. We were high school sweethearts. We've known each other for almost 20 years. Uh, these are our three boys. The guy who is, like, he's just over it. He's ready to just fall off the edge of the Grand Canyon there. Um, his name's Alistair. He'll be seven soon. Uh, and then uh, Arlo over here on the left is going to be five in a couple of days. He's, he's turning five soon. And then Monty, the little squishy guy, um, he's two. And he thinks he's seven. He thinks he's the oldest kid of the three of them. He's kind of the boss. Um, so that's my family. Um, we moved to the city of Tucson about a year ago. Uh, I started a pastoral residency there. Like Anthony mentioned, I had been working with a campus ministry. Both Desiree and I had been working in the campus ministry uh, for 11 years full time. Uh, most of that time was at ASU. Any? Just you, Anthony. It's just you, man. Go Devils, right? I can say that because I haven't gotten into God's Word yet. Go Devils. Uh, but we were there for seven years working in a campus ministry. And one of the things that, um, that's kind of a main feature in campus ministry is that one group always puts on this event that's like a campus unity event. So if you've been involved in a campus ministry or if you haven't, a campus, a campus unity event is, is something like this. One group says we're going to gather all the Christians together uh, one time a semester, maybe one time a year, and it's going to be for a worship night or a prayer night. Um, and what I found was that in the sphere that I was in, uh, there were a number of different reactions, but they kind of fell into two camps. So on the one hand, I had students who would come up to me and they'd be like, Keith, Keith, it is happening. It is finally here. We're doing it. We're dropping all the labels. We're not going to be crew and navigators and intervarsity and all these different groups anymore. We are going to be one, finally, just like Jesus tells us to be one. I call this group the idealists. You might call them the kumbaya camp, right? 
Um, these folks have a proper emphasis, I would say, on the people of God being together, being one, being united, and I really appreciated the hope and the optimism that was present in that group. But something that always rubbed me a little bit the wrong way with them was that in an effort to lift up unity, they often would press down what makes us different. They would press down distinctions in order to lift up unity. So they'd say, let's drop the labels, let's get rid of all the denominations, all the churches, all the different campus ministries, cut it all, we're just going to be the church on this campus, we're just going to be God's people on this campus. Distinctions aren't bad, they're good, right? Distinctions are good, differences are good. God made the world to have different people in different groups. But then on the other hand, I had another group, and I more often, I found myself in this group. These were the pragmatists, you might call them the pessimists, right? They call themselves realists. Um, And unlike the idealists, they say, listen, it's not even practical for us to just be one group on campus. That doesn't make any sense. And it diminishes the reality that each one of us, each one of our groups, has a different focus. We have a different purpose for being on this campus. We reach a different audience. We have a different strategy. We have different theology. And they'd have this good good emphasis that I, I really appreciated on um, the, the mission, the strategy, they really cared about going for it. And so you'd have one group that's like, we're the justice group. And you'd have another group that's like, we're the Bible group. Another group that's like, we're the evangelism group. We're the missions group, right? And I really appreciated the strategic nature of these groups. They were really focused. They really were focused on what they do well. But just like the idealists, when you lift up one thing, you press down another. And when they lift up their distinctions, often what would happen is they press down the need for relationship in these other groups. They would press down unity in order to lift up difference. And in the best case scenario, they would just kind of say, ah, this unity event is kind of a silly thing that we don't need to worry about. It's not strategic. But in the worst case, and you've probably met these people, I'm guessing, they would say that their group is not only distinct, it's the best group. It's superior. They would say, the way that we do mission, the way that we do worship, the way that we do theology is actually the best, and the other groups are lesser than. So unity, it seems like, is a middle road, right? I would just go down the middle road, and I would say, okay, i got to go to this event because I know that we're one, I should do this, but then on the other hand, um, I don't think it's very strategic necessarily to go to these campus unity events, so I'm going to go to it, but I also kind of feel like I'm wasting my time. That doesn't really give us a big picture of oneness. And I think, in general, our view of what it means to be united as a people, one people, is very small. We either think that it's this low bar of just getting together every now and then, praying every now and then, worshiping together every now and then, getting along, or we just think it's impossible. We can't even do it. We can't be one with people from other denominations or traditions. But the kind of unity that Jesus prays for in the passage we're going to look at this morning in John 17, the passage you just heard read, thank you so much, wherever wherever the scripture reader is, thank you so much for reading that. It's not that kind of oneness. It's a kind of oneness that makes the people in the city of Flagstaff look at Redemption Flagstaff, look at you, look at this congregation and say, something different is happening here. Whatever is going on here, This demands an explanation. I need to know what is happening. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into the text here in John 17. 
Heavenly Father, um, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have revealed who you are, your character through your word, through your holy scriptures, and thank you that you've revealed who you are through your son, Jesus. We ask in the name of Jesus this morning, Jesus, meet us here. As we read your words, we read your prayer, we, we pray the prayer of John Calvin that you would come clothed to us in these scriptures, that we would be able to meet you face to face, hear your words, and know what you're speaking to us today in the 21st century. Meet us here, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, if you um, are new here, um, you're just following along with the book of John. We've been in the book of John for 17 years. No, actually, it feels like that sometimes, 17 years. I think it's been about 17 months that we've been in the book of John, um, and we are now in chapter 17, which is great. Um, just to recap, the last couple weeks, Jesus has been in a prayer that's often called the high priestly prayer. It might even say that at the top of the text for your, for your Bible. And this is the last moments before Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. So the Garden of Gethsemane, it's where he's praying, and his disciples are falling asleep, and he comes and he gets arrested, right? And that kicks off the crucifixion events. It kicks off the passion events, right? So this is the last text. This is the last section before all of those events unfold and Jesus goes to the cross, Okay, just keep that in mind. Um, so if you're tracking along with us here, John 17, we're going to be in verses 20 through 26. Um, and I hope and I pray that God would give us as a church a bigger sense of what unity is, uh, a unity, like I said, that makes the world kind of scratch their head and say, what's going on here? Um, because of three things, diversity and unity, cross-shaped or costly love, and Christ made known. Okay, so we're going to go through those three points as we walk through the text. We're going to start in verse 20 with diversity and unity. Follow along with me here. These are Jesus' words, and he says this. I do not ask for these only. So he's talking, the last section, he's talking about the disciples. He's praying to the Father about the disciples, and now he says, I'm not praying just for the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So he's expanding immediately who his audience is, who he's praying for, and he's saying, okay, there's the 11 disciples, that's the 12 minus Judas Iscariot, right? And all the people who are going to believe through their words, them too, I'm praying for them, and then all the people who are going to believe through their words, I'm praying for them too, and you can kind of expand it out, right? The next generation, the next generation, the next generation, and so on and so forth, and Jesus is praying here for us on a continent that these people did not know existed, Right? in a city that was not established, in a school that was not built. None of us were born, but he is praying here for us. And not only for us in this church, in Redemption Church in Arizona, he's also praying for all Christians throughout all of time in every country in the whole world. He's praying for the global church. And listen to his prayer. He says that they may all be one. So immediately our view should be opened up quite a bit because I tend to think of oneness as conflict resolution, like Anthony likes the sons, he dogs on me for liking the kings. He doesn't. You're very gracious, thank you. He could, um, but then we resolve the conflict and we're good. Now we're one. But that's not what he's saying here. He's saying that the whole church throughout all of history in every country in the world would be one. How do we even, how, do we, how are we one with a fourth century Christian in North Africa? How are we one with the Catholic believer in Chile? How are we one with the Rwandan Pentecostal? How is that possible, right? 
And I'll be honest, it, it seems so big and so abstract and so difficult to wrap our minds around that um, I'm not quite sure what the, the step is, but I know that it, it starts with humility. It starts with us being humble and saying, I need to listen to other believers from other cultures, from other countries, from other traditions, from other backgrounds, from other socioeconomic statuses. I need to listen to believers from other generations, other eras in history, right? And again, maybe this is too big. You're like, I don't even know where to start with that. Start here. Start here. Look around. Go ahead. Look around. I'm just looking. Yeah, a couple people look. Wake up. Come on, guys. Um, start here in this room. There are people from different generations here in this room. And I think there's been, lately, there's been a kind of a culture within the United States that values youth over age. Am I right, older folks? Yeah? Amen. Yeah, right? Um, and one of the things that I've noticed is that I, and I'm speaking for myself here, I tend to devalue the wisdom of older folks, just from the way that I was raised, from culture. And if you want to start with what it looks like to be one from, uh, with people from different generations, different eras, let's start with that. Listen to the people here who are older than you. Hear their stories. Listen to their wisdom. This is a simple way to start, right? God, Jesus, is not praying just for conflict resolution. He's praying that the whole church, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, people from every era in history, people from every nation on the planet would be one. We can start by listening to the older folks among us. Amen? All right, let's keep reading. He says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, right? And um, my friends, the Kumbaya camp, the idealists, right, um, they kind of have this John Lennon thing going on where they say, like, imagine, imagine all the people without any distinctions, imagine no religion, right? They kind of have this idea that if we just go for sameness, if we just drop all the labels, then that'll solve all the problems of the world. And I think that that's actually prevalent, not just for John Lennon, not just for the idealists. I think that's kind of something we carry um, generally, uh, broadly in our culture. I've heard the same argument used for both the political right and the political left. That um, usually in the political right, it's when it comes to race and ethnicity and socioeconomic status. Like, why are we labeling people? Let's just remove the labels. If we remove the labels, that's going to solve the problems. But on the left, I hear it a lot more when it comes to gender and sexuality. If we just remove the labels, if we just treat everybody exactly the same, that's going to solve all the problems. But Jesus, notice what Jesus does here. His prayer is that he and the Father are one. Now, I'm not a Trinitarian scholar, but I know this, the Father is not the Son, right? That's a distinction. That's a label, you could say. The Son is not the Father. The Spirit is not the Son or the Father. They are three distinct persons. Do you see that? Am I crazy? You guys agree with me on this? And yet, they're not three distinct gods, right? They are diverse in their personhood, but they are one in being God. See, the mystery of God is diversity in unity. It's not sameness. It's not uniformity. Unity includes the God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Diversity and unity. Jesus makes distinctions. It's okay for us to make dis distinctions. 
And distinctions in unity, diversity in unity, is the beauty that's going to make people scratch their heads. Think about it this way. There are a lot of you here in this room that probably would not be friends if it weren't for Jesus. Am I right? Wow, that was uncomfortable silence. There are a lot of you here in this room who come from different backgrounds, different neighborhoods, different ethnic backgrounds, different generations. We got boomers and Gen Z folks here in the same room. And when the world is looking at Redemption Flagstaff, they're trying to figure it out. Why are you and you friends? What's going on here? I don't understand how you could all be so different and yet you could be one people here. How you could be united. And when they see that, they should say, this demands an explanation. I need to know what's going on here. Let's keep reading. That's diversity and unity. Diversity and unity demands an explanation. The second point here is costly love. Verses 22 through 24. Jesus says this, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Now, um, I was trying to figure out what is this glory that he's talking about, um, this glory that he's received from the Father. And in the book of John, the author, later on in the book, he uses this word glory. And what he's usually talking about is he's talking about the cross. Jesus says, the glory that the Father has given me, the cross is my glory. How in the world could the cross be glorious? Surely that's the low point in Jesus' story, right? The cross is Jesus' glory because that is the precise moment when he defeats the powers of sin and Satan and death that keep people from being one. That is the precise moment where he brings an end to the infection, the curse that's on our world that stops oneness in the world. That is the precise moment when he is lifted up on high, crowned with a crown of glory, named the king above all kings, and made visible so that the whole world can see him. The cross, what seems like the lowest point, certainly the costliest point for Jesus in his life, is his glory. It's his glory because it demonstrates the depth of his love for us. It demonstrates how far he's willing to go. Another place that Jesus uh, mentions this same idea is in the gospel, another one of the Gospels. He says there's no greater love than this, than that one would lay down his life for his friends. See, Jesus' glory is his costly, cross-shaped love. And here's where it gets really scary, folks. It says, the glory that you've given me, I have given to them. I'm not a fan of this one. (laughs) I'll just be honest. I think about how much love costs me to love somebody else well. um, And it's difficult for me to think about cross-shaped love. I'm not saying everybody's going to be a martyr. That's not what I'm saying here. Not everybody's going to, is destined for the cross. There are some globally in the church who are martyred. That is a consistent reality in our world today. Martyrs are um, dying for the name of Jesus. But I'm not talking about that, 
that necessarily that costly of love. I'm talking about just some simple steps of costly love for our neighbors here um, in our church. Um, a friend of mine came to me in a prayer meeting that we had a few years ago. I was at Redemption Church Tempe. And he said, um, I've been praying, and I think God is asking me to give my car to this other family in the church. And I think he was kind of, he was like, confirm for me that that's not what he's saying, please. <laughs> and we prayed, and, um, and I think the three of us, as we were praying, we were like, that, that is what God is asking you to do. The Spirit is telling us that love is costly, and what you're doing is you're, you're spending your resources in a way to love your neighbor in the church, um, a family that was just really having a hard time. Their car had broken down. They had some kids with special needs um, to bless this family. Now, here's where it's really convicting. For the sake of oneness, I'm not even willing to take out the trash for my wife. <laughs> I'm not willing to do the dishes. And maybe you relate with this. Something that's inconveniencing you, like giving someone a ride across town, or this is the worst, when someone's like, hey, so, hey, I'm moving, and I was just wondering, and you're like, I gotta go, I do not, because <laughs> you know what the next question is going to be, it's like, don't ask me, don't ask me, don't. sure, I'll help you move, <laughs> right? I'm not even willing to do that for love. That's how limited my view of love is. I don't believe in a costly cross-shaped love, but Jesus went to the actual cross and died for you. He paid everything for you. Surely I can take out the trash, right? Let's keep reading verse 23. Jesus kind of repeats the same sentiment that he repeated earlier, or that he said earlier. He says, I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly or completely one, and then he says it again. He says, so that the world may know that you have sent me. See, the purpose of the costly love, just like the purpose of diversity and unity, is so that the world that's watching would see your costly love and they would say, this demands an explanation. I need to know what's going on here. As if his love couldn't be greater he continues his prayer in verse 24, and he says this, Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Um, a few weeks ago at, uh, at Redemption Tucson, so I oversee, I'm the executive pastor. I oversee a lot of kind of the operational things that are happening, the setup of the teardown. Uh, shout out to the setup and teardown teams here. Can we clap for them? It's a lot of work, folks. And also, plug, if you're not volunteering, you should join one of those teams, right? Anthony's like, yes, yeah. Um, and so one of the things I do is I check in with the different kids' classrooms from time to time. And so I'm checking in uh, at this kid's classroom, and uh, I see this scene unfold. A, a five-year-old kid, I'm going to call him Aiden, that's not his name, but he bolts out of one of the, out of the classrooms. He just makes a run for it. He's like, this is my moment. This is my chance. And so he's gone, right? And our kids director, just in like superpowers, Rachel, she's just like, like slow motion almost, right? And she, she tackles him in love. 
It is a love tackle, right? He's fine. We didn't have to fill out an incident report or anything. She tackles him, and she brings him back to the classroom, and she starts talking to him in the doorway. And as she's talking to him, kids from the class start coming up to him. And they're like, Aiden, look. Look at what we're playing with. And they're asking him, like, hey, come play with us. Come play with us. Come play with us. And Aiden looks at Rachel, and he has this look of just puzzle, puzzlement, right? Is that a word, puzzlement? And he's looking at Rachel, and Rachel's like, Aiden, they want to be with you. They like being with you. Now, Jesus only has two prayer requests in this passage, believe it or not. The first is that we would all be one. Read the second one. That they may be with me where I am. Jesus is praying that you and I would be with him. I don't know that I believe this deep down in my soul, but this is what he's saying. I love them, but more than loving them, I like them. I actually want to be with them. I actually want to be with them. Sometimes I think that I'm a burden to Jesus. I'm just an annoyance to him. Jesus has to put up with me, but that's not his prayer, folks. His prayer is that you would be with him, that all of us would be with him. Think through the implications of how you would love and treat your neighbor if you believed the same thing about them, that Jesus deeply loves them and wants to be with them. He cares so much that his prayer request is, can we just skip to the end of the story? Can we go to the end, Father, where I am with them and they are with me and heaven and earth are one, where the whole church is with me in glory? Can we skip to that part? Because I want to be with my people. I love them. That's his prayer request for us. What type of genuinely, that, that type of genuine costly love, when that sinks in deep in our own bones, when we believe that Jesus wants to be with us, when we see how much he put on the line for us, it shows out in our love for other people. It goes out. And guess who's watching? The world is watching you. Your coworkers are watching you. Your neighbors are watching you. Your home is watching you. Your family is watching you. And when they see that kind of costly love, what do you think they say? This demands an explanation. I need to know what's going on here with these people. Let's keep going. Verse 25. Jesus says this, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name. Uh, the, world, the world doesn't know the one true God. And when I say the world, I mean folks who don't know Christ. People who are outside of relationship with Jesus. They don't know the one true God. They don't know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They don't know the story. They don't know Yahweh, right? And Jesus is saying, he knows him. He knows God. And we know that Jesus is the one who's sent by God. And Jesus, somehow in his incarnation, in his crucifixion, in his resurrection, in his ascension, has made known to us the name of God. When we see Jesus, we see God. God has a name. His name is Jesus Christ. Right? The way that Colossians says it, in Colossians 1, is Jesus is the image of the invisible God. God is invisible, but when we look at Jesus, we can see God. We can know God because we know Jesus. 
Jesus' work, though, is not done. Because what does he say? Let's keep reading. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. Jesus' work of manifesting the name of God, making the invisible God visible in the world, it is not complete. It's not done. He's still at work. There are people all over this world who right now at this very moment are meeting God because they met someone in Jesus' church and Jesus' church made Jesus known to them. There are people in your office There are people in your classes. There are people in your neighborhood, people in your family. There are people in your home who right now Jesus is working in them to make the name of God known to them. The God of diversity and unity. The God of costly love. How is he making his name known? He says this in verse 26 that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So the love of the Father and the Son is in them. Who's them? The church, right? God's people. Um, Christ himself, he says, is in us. You see that? That I in them. I really want to change the dynamic, though, here, um, because what I grew up thinking, and maybe you're like me, is that when I read a passage like this, the love of Christ in them, I in them, my first thought was um, kind of this individualistic idea that Jesus is in me. Like, And that's true. Don't get me wrong on this. I do absolutely believe if you follow Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives in you. You can say Jesus lives in my heart. You can say that with confidence. That is true. But I don't think that that's what Jesus is saying here. I think that he's saying in a corporate sense, I'm in them. In a collective sense, my love is in them. And what he's really trying to say is, just as he makes the invisible God known to us, we make the invisible God known to the world. Jesus' work is continuing through our love for one another and our love for the people of our city. We are God's appeal to the world to be reconciled. When we open our homes to people who are lonely in our city, we are Christ to our neighbors. When we speak a word of affirmation and encouragement to that coworker who is the the one that's least affirmed, most unseen, we are Christ to our neighbor. When we feed the hungry and those in need, we are Christ to our neighbor. When we welcome the immigrant and the foreigner and the refugee, we are Christ to our neighbor. When we visit with the elderly, when we listen to their stories, when we give them dignity, we are Christ to our neighbor. And when the world around us watches and when they see how different you are, the diversity and unity, the costly love, how you embody who Christ is to your neighbor, they are going to say, this demands an explanation. I need to know what's going on here. What are you going to tell them? What are you going to say? We can start with what Jesus says. 
in verse 21, in verse 23, in verse 25, he says that he is the one that is sent by God. So tell them that. Tell them that Jesus is on a rescue mission, that Jesus was sent by the Father to rescue and redeem and restore the world. Tell them that he has come to make the irreconcilable one. He's come to make individuals who are not reconcilable with God, one with God. He's come to make individuals, people groups, who are not reconcilable to one another, one, one body, one church. He's come even to make heaven and earth, the two least like each other things in the, that you can imagine, to bring those together and to make those one. Read what it says. I don't have it up here. I'll read it to you. Uh, Colossians 1, 19 through 20 says this. For in him, in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or in, uh, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. When they ask you, tell them that Jesus was sent on a rescue mission to bring together things as different as heaven and earth. So this is my question for you. Your diversity and unity, your costly love, you making Christ known and visible to your neighbors, when it catches the attention, when it inevitably, Redemption Flagstaff, when it inevitably catches the attention of your neighbor, and they look at you and they scratch their head and they say, I don't get it, this demands an explanation, are you ready to give that explanation? Are you ready? Let me pray. Jesus, we are so grateful that you were sent. That you were sent by the Father into the world. That your mission is not just to reconcile us as individuals to yourself, but it's to reconcile us to one another. Jesus, we're so grateful that it's, um, your mission is so big that it's to reconcile heaven and earth. That someday you're going to make all things right. You're going to make all things new. We pray just like Jesus prayed that we would be one. And we are praying and we are asking that the city of Flagstaff, that the state of Arizona would look at our congregation, they would look at the church in Flagstaff at large, and they would say, this demands an explanation. I need to know what's going on here. Jesus, move in this place, move in this city. We ask that your spirit would bring more and more people to know you, Jesus, so that they would know the Father and be a part of the community, the church. Go ahead of us. Give us opportunities and help us to have an answer when someone says this demands an explanation. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.